If you just said this, right? I have to take out Harry Lang and other hundred of your candidates. I'd, I, I, <laughs> you said that. What I'm saying is, I'd have to take out. Okay, I'll take out Conor Whelan then. Conor Whelan I, have to be. That's it. I quit. Subscribe to the GA podcast feed on the OTB Sports app now. Back talking hurling, and I'm delighted to say uh, David Harrity is back with us. David, good morning to you. How are you getting on? I'm very good, Jar. How are you keeping? What did you make of the rugby before we get into the hurling? Yeah. yeah. The greatest sporting moment, uh, just listen there, um, Jesus, it was pretty amazing, in fairness. I, I don't, like, it's funny, you'll probably, you know, we'll obviously be talking about the hurling dollar in the final in a short while. I was more emotionally attached to the rugby than I would have been to the GA on Sunday. When it comes to the GA, I kind of tend to look at it in a, a manager's point of view now and kind of look for something that I can rob to bring back to my own team, whether it's a warm-up or the state of play or the movement of the forwards. You kind of, you don't really get into the whole, this is amazing, but Jesus, the rugby, I thought it was incredible. I thought the way, um, especially after, obviously the ball off the crossbar from Johnny Sexton to go down the field, you know, for them to get the try and then to kind of go along and think that, you know, you're always kind of thinking in the aftermath, everyone's going to be talking about, oh, another couple of inches that was over the bar for Johnny Sexton, but they lost and it was another feel good kind of, they did well enough. They won a, one of the, one of the games and I was able then to go back up the field and, and and finish off the job. I thought it was exceptional. Yeah, I think it's, it's. I, I thought it was an incredible performance by them. And just see them on the side and afterwards and obviously Peter Manley uh, crying away. But just the subs coming down, just that whole euphoria that they're able to enjoy the last two minutes of a, a match like that on the sideline with the subs, knowing that you're about to create history. I, I geez, I, I, uh, I thought that was pretty special. Uh, I actually thought there was a lot of parallels between Ireland's victory and a little bit about how Limerick were uh, clearly the better team. The other side yeah. gets back into it and then they have to fend them off. And I actually thought Rory McIlroy was going to do exactly the same thing and it was going to be this triple weekend of uh, of achievement where a team and what looks like the best team gives the opposition room to get back into the game. So to, to pivot to the hurling, um, why were Kilkenny so close to Limerick at the end when it felt like Limerick scores were coming much easier than Kilkenny scores. Oh, that's, I was looking at the stats afterwards that someone puts up on, on Twitter there and, you know, you're kind of looking for, oh, that's the reason why uh, Limerick won or that's the reason why Kilkenny lost. But the similarities between them all, like what you said there, I found, you know, you're jotting down your little notes then in your programme, who's scoring what, um, and all of a sudden Kilkenny would get their score, like Richie Hogan score in the 63rd minute. And then you're kind of looking up and you're going, how did they... How the hell did Limerick just get a point straight away there? Yeah. As in, it just seemed to be the ease. It does go back down to Nicky Quaid. It goes down to the half forward line. Their movement is, that's what I was just fixated on the whole day, was looking at Gerard Hegarty moving a little bit left and then right and then left again. He's just going off. Tom Morrissey's just all over the place. And then Kyle Hayes, the same. They, they, were, they were unstoppable. Now, you would question whether why the Kilkenny halfbacks didn't stay to the outside of them and then pick them up as they're kind of coming over to meet them. And I thought there, was a, there wasn't as much communication there as should have been there. Like even when you looked at when Clare played Limerick back in uh, the Munster final, um, sorry, it was, the, it was the group game that time. And you saw the Clare lads was actually getting Gerald Hegarty in a headlock and dragging him to the ground on puckouts. You're kind of going, it nearly needed that level of physicality where someone just took one for the team and just decided, no, enough is enough here. You're not getting the run of the park. But he was, what did, what did he win? It was something like there was 13 puckets hit down on top of him. He won 11 clean. When you compare that to TJ Reid seemed to be kind of mauled and molested every single time the ball was hit down to him. He was still winning some of the puckouts, but how physically draining that must have been for him to win the ball 
with someone on his back and then to try and give off the ball. It just seemed like Kenny were exerting far more energy on the puck outs. I think that was the only stat that I kind of looked at and I went, Kenny, Kenny won 42% of their puck outs. Uh, Limerick had won 65 uh, of their long puck outs. I was thinking, yeah, it, it did made sense. Just the score seemed to come a lot easier for uh, Limerick than it did for Kenny. And yes, it was only a couple of points in the end. Like the, I, I definitely agree with you, David, that there, there is a sense that Limerick looked unstoppable at the weekend and they've looked unstoppable for years and yet Clare almost stopped them and Galway, Galway almost stopped them and on the scoreline when people look back they'll say geez that was a close game Kilkenny almost stopped them like is there and I appreciate they are absolutely one of the greatest teams of all time is there still an aspect about that though where we already have them on that pedestal and their reputation feeds into the idea that they're unstoppable as much as their brilliant performances do I always thought that they were kind of going in not fourth, fifth gear. I just thought right. that there was always another level. Like when Richie Hogan got that point and, and you know, the small enough Kilkenny crowd that seemed to be there, um, all of a sudden then they hit five in a row. And then obviously for the last few minutes then they just brought back Kyle Hayes and put him on the edge of the square kind of going, you're, you look, at, you might score a point or two here, but you're not going to bag a goal. Like if they'd won by five points, I think everyone would have went, wow, what an amazing team. Plus, you know, you, you do look at Afterwards, they were reading an article this morning that David Reedy would barely made the final. Kyle Hayes barely made the final. Did an injury, whatever the hell those injuries might have been. Said the medical team did a great job, so they're probably after getting an injection there to try and get them through the game. Aaron Gillan didn't look 100. Peter Casey's only after coming on. Keen Lynch didn't play a minute. So that's what you're kind of looking at a team like that that have more gears to come. They have a, a savage bench and they have those under 20s that. Probably would have won all Ireland if they had Cahill O'Neill there this year. So they've, uh, no, I, I, as as much as I think you'd like to say, yeah, they're coming back to the pot and they are, are to, the, to the rest of the group. I actually think that they could blow it completely out of the water next year. I, I think the likes of Keane Lynch, especially when it was him that was missing, imagine him coming back into that group next year, kind of drive the standards. Imagine him; he wants to be back out in that that field, having that feeling in the in the seventieth minute there, knowing he's going to win an all Ireland. So. I, I can't imagine him letting up on any of the players around him. I can't, like, even their group. I, I, you hear so many stories coming out about them there the weekend. I was lucky enough to be in the GPA box uh, and you're kind of talking to different managers and they're all coming out with stories about Limerick but it, and just the, the envy of the kind of managers that are around there without naming names, kind of, that of they have their, their gym session night and strength and conditioning coach comes in and they're just all there. They're all doing exactly what they should be doing. Everyone's there. Everyone absolutely hammers it out the gym. Um, and then they head off home. And it's just a case of it's just running like clockwork that everyone is they're driving such high standards. Every single player is driving around the next lad, the next lad. And obviously the lads coming in, then you know, the lads that are playing don't want to lose their position. So because they know they're on the crest of a, a, an incredible wave at the moment. And uh geez, when you have players as motivated as that, it's that's a fairly unstoppable force. I think Shefflin was in the GPA box as well. But who was he shouting for? <laughs> I, Henry was there, and look, he is on Cody's nephew, and he's very close to TJ and Adrian Mullen as well, and uh, obviously Richie Reid as well. So yeah, no, all the all his kids. We met him up in the skyline earlier on that day, and they're all uh, dressed up there in Kilkenny gear. Yeah, no, they're brilliant, and George was there as well. Um, talk to us about the goalkeepers, will you? Like what? What? Because there was various stages where. Uh, Nicky Quaid would let the ball run past him and you're like what's going on here and then it just looked a little bit kind of um, antsy in possession but it never 
it, it never resulted in a mistake after that. It was just that like little extra second, or uh, maybe he was maybe he was totally at ease in his environment. It was like he was poking around in the back garden with the kids, and um, the ball goes past. He's kind of letting it in, like pretending that he's letting it in, and then all of a sudden he picks it up and pings a pass seventy yards. So, what was their respective performances like in to your mind? Uh, Nicky Quaid, I would say, is on a par at the moment with Stevie Cluxon in his ability as a goalkeeper. I saw him in 2018. I was blown away by him. He kind of he's he has he has changed my whole thought process of of where goalkeeping and puck out should be. In that he's waiting. He's just he's ready with the the, the ball is literally up in his hand and he's the hurl just ready primed. Like it's not this usual, you know, back in. Jesus, even in my day, you, you took the few steps and you absolutely lumped it. He is just constantly looking and waiting like a Terminator there, just trying to see, right, where is the space opening up? But the players are making space and then he hits the pocket. A lot of the, lot, a lot of keepers, obviously, all over the, the country, would the keeper hits the ball and the players move to where the ball is landing. But the players are making the move and they decide where the pockets are going uh, with the space that they're creating and then he's able to pick it out but he he's able to control the tempo of the game he's not getting frustrated you never see him throwing up the arms going like again you would see in, in club games going well someone flip and move like you know he, he's just waiting and waiting and again you have Hegarty and Morrissey and they're moving over and back and it's uh, Jesus even even on the you know I said after the game on, on Sunday that's um, a scoreable free everything nowadays is that Everyone has their little gimmicks and their power plays uh, and so on. And there might be a score, but free there. And TJ took a free. So I'm kind of obsessed then looking at the, the Limerick forwards going, right, how are they going to set up on a score, but free? Because it's, it's an easy enough thing for uh, a forward line to try and know what's coming up. And then they have those few, they're probably about 30 seconds to try and organise. Um, and then the first one, O'Donoghue and uh, Donovan pushed up right up into the half forward and created that bit of space. Now they ended up losing that one. But then the next one, then after TJ's free, they went spinal. And then the next one, then they went zonal. Uh, sorry, they loaded one side. And then the next one, next one was back to a spine again. You're, kind of, you're constantly looking around going, who the hell is organizing this? There's no one pointing. There's normally one person, maybe your center forward is, is dragging everyone over because people aren't uh, awake to it. But they're just running like clockwork. They just move in, in such unity that they all know what they're doing. And they're all able to create this space. And again, I don't know, maybe if, if Paddy Deegan and Mikey Carey had stood to the outside of the two half forwards, maybe then Nicky Quaid has obviously the intelligence then right and going straight down the middle where there's three lads versus Richie Reid. Um, he's, he's, he is incredible. And again, you look back in the highlights and he's running out with the ball. Gerald Hegarty is just slotting out to that kind of the... the the, that that kind of between the 65 just picking up a ball and then he's driving over the bar it's it's a nightmare for defenders because normally the golden rule is you follow your forward out to the 65 and you leave him off after there because you kind of think well after there then he's probably going to get caught up and some midfielder is going to come out and he won't be able to be shooting under pressure but Carol Hegarty only needs kind of a yard of space and it's straight over the bar from 100 yards even when David Blanchfield was on him in that for the last puck he just threw him off like a rag doll and then slotted over the bar from about 80 yards. It's it's just sublime physicality. Uh, on Owen's puckouts, I just felt TJ was, he didn't have many options. The movement was, wasn't was great at all. The half forward line were far too close out to midfield looking for the ball. And that's an impossible ball for a goalkeeper to hit then because it's like a pitching wedge. You're trying to get it over the midfielders to land it down on, on the, the half forward line's head. But then you just have, like the Dermot Burns point, you have a half-back who's just sitting ready that when he does catch it, he actually is out in the 65 and he can slot it straight back over the bar. They didn't seem to have as much cohesion in knowing 
right, where are we going with this? And and then, obviously, then he was route one down to TJ. The half forward line were out too far, so TJ was left isolated. So when the ball did break, you would probably Declan Hannon coming back, picking up. Barry Nash was obviously was always brilliant anyway. Um, and then kind of, but, but when Wally Welch came on, it gave him the two kind of, High towers there in the in the second half there that he had two options there that he was able to go left and right and and Limerick found it quite difficult then for a while to try and get to terms with Wally Welsh. That's why I thought Wally or John Donnelly should have started to give uh, give on a bit more a bit more range there. Adrian Mullins obviously an outstanding hurler, but probably probably moving him to midfield and starting there and starting one of John or uh, Wally Welsh in the final. I'd say that was just one of the mistakes that Kenny made. On the Quaid puckouts, David can. Any team sort of replicate at least the plan of what you're talking about there of the clockwork of the the varying formations that are in front of Quaid. I know obviously the hard part of that is being as good as Nicky Quaid is in terms of nailing it every single time, just like Cluxon was in his heyday. But is there parts of that element of his game that other counties can replicate? Oh, everyone can. Everyone can, but you you need an extremely patient uh, goalkeeper that's not just going to get peed off and then all of a sudden then just kind of just drive the ball and throw the hands up. You need someone who's extremely calm, patient with the forwards, understanding it's not working now. It's not working. That moment is not there. Now it's there. Now I'm pinging it out. Now I can see the movement. And then they're able to get the ball. Again, just small little things. Gerard Hegarty's not winning a ball and he has his back turned to Owen Murphy's goal where he's just, he has to do a full 180 and he's a back up, uh, back up him. Uh, it's the fact that when that ball is bouncing, he's already winning the ball half turned. He has his shoulder nearly facing towards the other goal. So a lot of his size, it's in, it's, it's incredibly easy then for him to just get a ball on the bounce, turn, and he's already gone through the back. It's an impossible job for the back. But that's that's months and years of planning. That's that's John Kiley and Kinnerp being together now for for five years working on this. I'm sure to I. I just say in my time, we would have worked on puckouts. We would have done probably about ten minutes of puckouts maybe three times a year where it was it was all about the break. So I'd just lump down the ball, we'd work on the break for fifteen seconds and that was it. And we'd blow up the whistle and we'd go back up again. But there was no there's no movement. There's no structure. There's no one who has a clue where they're going. It's just a fact. But then again you didn't have to. When you had TJ Reid or Henry or Richie Power or Owen Larkin or, or Gertha there, like there, there's, you didn't have to be working on styles or, or formations. You just did what you did. But it's uh it's completely it's it's the time and patience for a manager and a team to be able to go along and go, right, we're actually going to go along and spend a whole session on this tonight or we're spending 30 minutes tonight and again we're going over and going over and going over, going over before the match. Here are our puck out plans. Here are our options. And everyone's just drilling puck outs in. Because again, you know, you're 40, oh, Murphy has 42 puck outs on Sunday. Uh, Quaid had, I think it was 35. So, you're gonna. The keeper has the ball the most amount of time in a match. It's about respecting that and kind of going. Well, we have to get these forty-two and thirty-five puckouts right. Like you have, you have to put time into it. And uh, yeah, the, I, I just think it's it's nearly boring, or it's not. There's not enough meat to it there sometimes for managers where they're kind of going. Let's just get on with it. I just just like even Herdon and Westford, David Fitz had the Mark Fanning. He had an earpiece in him for one of the matches, one of the last matches where Mark Fanny didn't, wasn't in control of the bookouts anymore. David Fitz had the earpiece uh, and he was telling them where to book the ball. You're kind of thinking, well, where's the autonomy there? Like that's, that's just one, that's only, that's only, was it two years ago? Now at this stage, uh, I think it was down below in Clare where again, I suppose that caused a bit of riff at the moment at that time, but it's, it's, 
it's to be able to go along and actually trust your players and let them do what they're doing. But that's from from that's that's the quick fix, trying to tell the manager where, where to go. And sorry, just another thing, just on puckouts, because it is one of my pet peeves now in life. Uh, it's also the kind of manager when you are doing puckouts, uh, the manager standing out around midfield, facing the goalkeeper, waiting for the goalkeeper to puck out the ball. And I would have had arguments with Brian over the you know down through the years. He's like, we hit out the ball, hit the boy, the boys are moving. He'd turn around, they'd all be like statues. He'd turn around, everyone would start buzzing all over the place. And then he'd look back <laughs> and he'd go, well, you hit the runners. And I'm like, there's nobody effing moving. And then there'd be, you know, the stare off would happen. Then two, two ignorantly, oh, sorry, two headstrong men going at each other kind of. But it was just, that was it. It was, uh, you know, if you want to see how puckouts are done, stand down beside the goal and see what the keeper is seeing. And all of a sudden then you'll see, you'll soon see, I used to kind of say, it was like, you know, take me out. Uh, the show like that, the lights start going out. Like you were corner back because you're back, weren't you? So that's that light gone. And then he's after closing off the space of the half back. So that's his light gone out. And then you soon realize then there's seven or eight lights are gone. The corner forwards are not even tuned into what's going on uh, because they think the ball is too far away. Like So it's you're trying to then explain to the manager, but you're, if he's out of midfield, it just doesn't work. He doesn't see what's going on. So that's why I look at technology as well, having, having cameras behind the goals and facing out and seeing all the movement patterns that you can now obviously makes a big, big difference. And I'm sure Limerick have all these, uh, have all these, uh, Equipment there at, the, at their disposal. Would you wear an earpiece? Would you? Would you? Would you welcome that as a as a goalkeeper? You can't see from where. Sorry, as a goalkeeper, would it? No, no, not in a million years would I want someone in my ear or in my head. I've enough. I've enough voices in my own head there talking to myself <laughs> about stuff in life, so I don't need someone else there roaring at me. Because again, you cannot. If you're a manager and you're pumped up in the silence, something's after happening, and then all of a sudden, then you're there roaring at the goalkeeper down there like it, it, again you're, you're you're talking about how a manager communicates with his goalkeeper it generally is through a roar because that's the only way of getting your information to him I do, over an earpiece is not the way either because you'll be just telling them what to do and like I said most goalkeepers anyway are extremely headstrong mentors anyway uh, that's why they're probably in the goal they have that that, that in them that nature so uh, no I wouldn't ever have an earpiece on um, the the this the stylistic change of play that we saw from Kilkenny this year was relatively significant, it seems. So, is this team on a on a an evolutionary journey now? And should we expect them to address the puck out issue, given that they do seem to have addressed the style, where they're at least thinking about being different from the original team that you were part of? It looked like they were trying some short puck outs that you know. To, to some degree of success uh, some issues where they were playing into um, difficulties particularly in that first half but yeah. at least they're looking for pockets of space and players in space as opposed to just Laurie and Ball down the whole game on Twin Towers in the full forward line Yeah just on the short puck as well Kikini went short 10 times and they never looked comfortable with the 10 times and it was just that's one thing I think Owen's the best goalie of all time and always will be that's just my own view on it Um his puckouts though were just that foot a yard maybe above the head of Mikey Butler or Tommy Wells. They just or they were at knee height, and then that craze used panic. I actually thought we the Kenny could have been done for hitting the ball inside the twenty one a few times that he was, they were under hit and and the player was inside. So it's uh, there was that kind of panic then of Jesus, you could get hit when you take that extra couple of touches that someone from Limerick is going to come in and absolutely nail you with that. Um, they. I think they're, they are, I, I wouldn't say at, at any point there, you can go, God, they're going to push on from that. Because like I said to you last week, in 2014, 
we, we were all about this heads up hurling that we had changed our style of play because Claire had done it in 13 and we were going to do it then in uh, 14 we were going to start picking out players and so on and uh, it, it never really materialised uh, at all maybe I don't know for, for whatever reason they'd have to kind of stick at it but there have to be the first thing has to be is that is the same management team going back in place uh, again Connor Phelan's in there he's the head coach he's been there now two years but but having said that last year, he would have been on, you know, with COVID, he wouldn't have had a massive amount of game time with the lads out in the pitch as well. So I would imagine Connor would love to, yeah, take this on another level there as as coach and try and develop this. And it's about keeping on to the players. And and the great thing is, the very promising thing about Kenny is the fact that that whole team, I can imagine the starting team will be staying on next year. So then they're able to have a bit more cohesion with the with the players that they have and that they know their movement style and so on. But Brian looked back in that game, could look back in it ten times. They'll pick out little things there of people that just didn't match up to us. You know, I, I, I can, like again, like I said to you a few weeks ago, that PJ Ryan, two thousand and ten, he just felt his puckouts weren't going over the half back line. So that was PJ gone. That was him out the gap. And uh, you had Chaff Fitzpatrick in that two thousand and ten as well. Got held up uh, at midfield. Physically wasn't big enough for it. And in Brian's head, that was him gone. He, as I said before, he, he never says it, but. In the off season, he'll know the different areas there that he needs to improve. He went for myself because I had longer pocket than PJ. Uh, you know, Michael Fenney was a, a physically bigger and stronger man than the likes of Chaz. So that was kind of Chaz, the right name uh, was on the wall there for himself as well. And uh, yeah, he, he'll find different areas there that he probably feels. If he stays on, it, again, you don't know. I, th- I think it's a. His stock is pretty high at the moment from a lot a lot of quarters. The fact that he got them back to a final, that it was such a competitive final, that I suppose it's Limerick that won, that it, I regard as one of the, the, the great teams now, that maybe it might be a time that he might feel that he's moving on. And uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know. I'd say that's going to be, it's going to be an interesting, I'd say, battle in his head more than any other year, I'd say, just whether he does stay or whether he heads on. Because you think deep down he might want to leave it on a high, which this kind of is? It is. I know, like it is. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I kind of, you see articles everywhere, they're kind of, they died with their boots on, died with their boots on. And you're kind of, okay, yeah, that, no, and they did, they, they, they fought to the bitter end. Kind of going, that's still not where we're at. Like, as in, there's still moments there where you're kind of leaving Gerald Hegarty have the freedom of the whole park. Like, there's still areas there where you're kind of thinking, how the hell did this, how is this allowed to happen? Like, where was the, where was the control of that half battle? Where were the switches when they were scoring one thirteen from play? Like, what was happening there? Like, and it obviously made the move at halftime, bringing on Wally, but it just still showed that they were a small bit slow um, in in their changes and in the kind of movements, in even in how they set up on the day. Again, like we said on on puckouts, I just don't think it's there yet, or the, at that level of attention, it has gone to that point yet. But. Um, it could be a good time for him. But look, that's all up in his own head. He, yeah. Nobody knows. I, I heard quite recently from a reliable source, he had mentioned to someone that he was going at the end of 2021 and, yeah, stayed on in 2022. So that, uh, yeah, he, he could decide. He could look at it and kind of go, well, TJ is still there. The whole team is still there. There still is a, there still is a chance there to get back to that stage. Um, I just, uh, I, I think... Yes, dying with the boots on it is grand and brilliant and all that kind of stuff. But Kenny, are, it's not easy next year when you have Liam Cal coming in. Just say you've water from the whole management team. You've Pat Ryan down below at Cork. You've Henry in his second year. Uh, you know, even Dara Egan in, in his second year down below. A new manager in Dublin. It's going to be next year. It's going to be a fiery championship. But everyone is back up 
gunning. And then you have the likes of Limerick there. I thought it was uh, fairly ominous there when you hear John Kiley inter- is interviewing. He goes, we're going to enjoy the next few months and then be ready to go in January. Yeah. Go, Jesus, man, 20 minutes after all. Well, he was at uh, it. He was, yeah. The spit season probably helps the team oh, going totally. for consecutive years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 100%. Spit season is amazing. Just from, from, from a personal point of view, it's amazing to be finished up and then know I can sit back Review kind of management teams, review looking at players, club championship, just to be able to have that break, complete break, spend some time with the family. I think for an intercounty manager, it's, a, it's an extremely attractive job at the moment, just from the amount of that you're able to give absolutely your whole life to it for eight months and then be able to enjoy some life. And, and then obviously you're still doing your job and the, and the off season is still fairly chaotic, but it's not, it's at a, at a more controlled pace. It's yeah. lovely. 